0: Dear Lord, we are grateful for your faithfulness to us in the midst of all the difficulties and joys and those things that make up the variety of our lives. We know, Lord, that your faithfulness is unequaled. We know, Lord, that you stand with us in every and all situations. We're thankful, Lord, for the fact that you're constantly working to draw us into that relationship with yourself that will be for our great advantage, for our joy, for our strength. We're thankful for the Word of God that you give to us to so plainly declare who you are and who we are to be. We ask that again your Spirit will be our guide as we study this day. And, uh, And Lord, we would again remember all of the classes that are Uh, occurring at this hour where children and adults in junior high, senior high, college classes are transpiring. We pray that you'll be present there to bring about the truth of the word to the heart of each individual and bless the service that is transpiring concurrently. And we'll thank you for hearing us and for what you will do in Christ's name. Amen. Last Sunday, we looked at one of the Well, one of the most profound passages of Scripture in terms of describing uh, the scenario in which God will begin to speak to his people. It was a bright, clear, sunny morning 3,400 years ago when all of Israel was marshaled to the base of what was known or would be known as Mount Sinai. And as they stood there at the base of this otherwise ordinary mountain, just a hunk of granite sticking up in the air, but because of God's choice that this will be the place where he will meet his people, it becomes known as the mountain of God. There was nothing special about the mountain, about the rocks, about the molecules in that mountain. It was simply God's choice of location. And the fact that Places in and of themselves bore no specific holiness was seen in the fact that Israel did not commemorate that mountain or build a (coughs) temple or something on the top of the mountain. In fact, the mountain is even uncertain, even to this very day. This teaches us that it is God himself who is to be worshipped in nothing that is related even to him, that is physical. We saw that the scripture describes the shaking of the mountain. It just, it shook violently. And then as they looked up to the top of the mountain, there was this huge black cloud sitting on top of the mountain. And emanating from this cloud was fire and smoke and lightning and thunder. And from the midst of the Holocaust, the voice of God spoke. I'd like to read from Exodus chapter 20, the first 17 verses. Exodus 20, verse 1 through 17. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. We know from our study of Scripture down through the years that God sometimes speaks in a still small voice as he would do later on this very mountain to a prophet by the name of Elijah. But on this day... (laughs) God's voice thundered from the mountain. was no still, small voice. It was an overpowering, overwhelming emanation from the top of the mountain. And as the words came forth, they are what are sometimes called the Ten Words, the Decalogue, or the Ten Commandments of God. And you can just imagine the people standing down at the base of the mountain, having witnessed all that they had seen, this overwhelming sensory uh, impact upon them through their eyes and their ears and, and, and probably even the, uh, the smell. Who knows? Uh, maybe there was a great sulfurous smell. I don't know. Uh, vibrations from the mountain. All of this was impacting them. And then the voice of God spoke. And the people stood there transfixed, in awe and fear. They had never seen anything like it before. And God gave to them the basic guidelines for holy living. But first of all, God does something very important. He identifies himself. He says, I am Yahweh, your Elohim, who delivered you from slavery in Egypt. I am the Almighty One who delivered you I am your God, you are my people. See, he's established a relationship here. I am your God and you are my people. We are inextricably intertwined here. I have every right in the world to give you what I am now speaking. And as he does so, the people, of course, could have no doubt as to whom was speaking, nor to his authority, because they had witnessed his great deliverance in Egypt and the great plagues with which he had destroyed Egypt. What is very amazing about this is God displays his omniscience and his omnipotence as he very, very simply gives to us these 10 words, these 10 commandments. No great complex, convoluted propositions, just simply straightforward statements, standards of how God will measure the obedience of His people. Obedience to the Ten Commandments would demonstrate worship. We have a tendency today to limit the word worship. You probably have experienced this. Often it's said, well, we're going to have worship, then we're going to have announcements, then we're going to have an offering, then we're going to have a message. No, 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 no. If all of that isn't worship, we're missing the boat. Worship is obedience to God. Worship is doing what He has commanded us to do. That's true worship. There are so many today who proclaim with their mouths, their worship of God, and then who live a life that does not fit with their proclamation, who excuse their actions as being, well, I'm just, you know, I'm not yet perfected. What's that? Those many letters that are on the button, you know, please be patient with me. God is not finished with me yet, or something like that. And and that's, I understand that. It's perfectly true, (laughs) but it's not an excuse. It's not an excuse for living in violation with God's. (laughs) clear directives as to how we truly worship Him. We worship Him by obedience first and foremost. Our music, our prayers, our giving, and all the rest of it has got to be corollary to the primary goal of obedience as a true form of worship. This obedience would produce the true witness to the world. How will the pagan world know that the God of Israel is any different from any other God unless his people demonstrate what it means to honor and worship him? And so it would be the powerful witness to the world in which they were living. Then after this introductory statement, this, this premise upon which everything else will be built, God says or proclaims what we call the first commandment. And of course the first commandment itself is basic to the other nine. The other nine don't have any meaning if we don't understand the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. This commandment, as we look at it, has both a positive and a negative aspect to it. The negative aspect was a prohibition against worshipping any so-called god except the true God whose name was Yahweh. So there was this prohibition. But the positive aspect was they were to worship Yahweh. One of the things you do not find in this first commandment is the option of non-worship. There is no option of (laughs) non-worship. Implied in that is you will not worship non-gods. You will worship the real God. And that's just flat out the way it's got to be. Jesus, when he responded to Satan in the temptation in the wilderness, he said, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Serve Him only. I think one of the important aspects of this first commandment that we need to note, that it is not an admission that there are other gods, first of all. Let me just read, this isn't on your outline, but let me just read from Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah makes several statements in this portion of his prophecy to this effect. But let me read Isaiah 44, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, I am the last, and there is no God besides me. There is no God besides me. That means that you're not a God and I'm not a God. And nothing, no, nothing else is a God. Just Yahweh, Jehovah. Then over later on in that same chapter at verse 16, he's he's painting an interesting uh, scene here. He talks about someone who cuts down a tree, and there's this log, okay? He's got this log. Verse 16, half of it he burns in a fire. Over this half he eats meat as he roasts a roasts and is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. But the rest of it, the other half of the log, he makes into a god, his graven image. He falls down before it and worships it, and he also prays to it and says, deliver me, for thou art my god. And of course, Isaiah is pointing out the stupidity of this. I mean, what happens if he used the wrong end of the log (laughs) to make his god out of Burnt the wrong end. The, The thrust is... There is no such thing as another god. But mankind insists that there is God, our gods. And so, if we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning at verse 4, as you well know, Corinth was a city committed to the worship of many different gods. So, paganism was a big problem there. Paul says, Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. And even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, and he's, of course, speaking in part tongue-in-cheek here, yet as for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all thing are all things, and we exist for him and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. Paul is saying there are so-called gods because people have chosen to make them gods. But they aren't gods. There is only one God. Everything else is a human invention. In Egypt, the Israelites experienced many of these so-called gods. And we talked about some of them in brief, you know, Hathor and Isis and... Uh, you know, the, the, the long list of gods and goddesses of ancient Egypt. And they were portrayed in many different forms. Some of them were in the form of a bull. Some of them were in the form of an alligator. Some were in the form of a woman or the moon or the sun or whatever. And, and they were worshipped in many different ways. There are priesthoods involved in all of them. And the Israelites had experienced all of that. They had seen it going on around them. And certainly some of the Israelites had been sucked off into that. But when God brought the ten plagues upon Egypt, he demonstrated very clearly and very finally that these were not gods. You know, the Egyptians might call them gods, but what kind of power do they have? I mean, God dealt with them right in their own area of authority. He struck the Nile God by turning the whole Nile River into blood. And the God couldn't do anything about it. He darkened the sky in spite of the fact that uh, old, what's his name, <laughs> Amun-Re was supposed to be, you know, the god of the universe, the, I mean of the Egyptian universe anyway, the god of the sky, rode through the chariot every day, dragging the sun across the sky, couldn't do anything about it. God had dis- demonstrated the powerlessness of these so-called gods. And so what this commandment is doing is reinforcing the overwhelming importance of worshiping the true God and not being sidetracked on, you know, into the trail of chasing after a non-god of some sort. Matthew Henry, who has written one of the more devotional commentaries on Scripture, uh, makes this statement. He says, The Egyptians and other neighboring nations had many gods. The creatures of their own fancy, strange gods, new gods. And then he, he turns to the, the reader. He says, the sin against this commandment, which we are most in danger of, is the giving is giving the glory and honor to any creature which are due to God only. Pride makes a God of self, Covetousness makes a god of money. Sensuality makes a god of the belly. Whatever is esteemed or loved, feared or served, delighted in or depended upon, more than God, that we do in effect make our God. So as we look at this passage and we read the uh, proclamation that there shall, we shall have no other gods before the true and the living God, we might say, well, that doesn't really relate to us because we're not bowing down to any uh, statue of Ashtar or Baal or, or any of the other gods and goddesses, but we have different kinds of gods and goddesses that can assault us. As Matthew Henry uh, is implying here, I mean, we can worship money, for example, and that, of course, is one of the great icons, one of the great idols of our society. And there are thousands who fall down to its image, in effect, every day and worship at its altar. And, you know, sensuality has just permeated this society from one end to the other end. And that, too, has numerous worshipers. And, you know, it's not that hard to be drawn into it ourselves because it's all around us. We, we swim in a sea of muck. it might be, uh, in our society, and to continue to keep ourselves pure unto God, takes conscious awareness of the fact that we are being drawn and tempted by all of these other things around us. It reminds me of the individual who spends the entire weekend worshiping at the altar of whatever it is, you know his automobile, who spends the whole weekend babying his automobile and cleaning it and you know, tuning it and doing everything. And each weekend he does the same thing. I mean, he's worshiping at the god of his automobile, really. Or the person who spends the entire week, you know, works all five days and then, boy, every last minute of the weekend is on the slopes or or out at the beach or whatever. Weekend after weekend after weekend, worshiping, you know, we have a lot of sun worshipers in this country, during the summertime particularly, you know, and the sun takes a toll on them, whether they know it or not. Uh, or our slope worshipers, or whatever it is. We have a lot of them in our society. And it's not too difficult to be drawn into that and to forget that we're to worship the Lord our God, and Him only are we to serve, which doesn't mean we can't go skiing, can't, doesn't mean we can't go surfing, doesn't mean we can't do these other things. It just is, where are, is our heart? Where's our heart? Where's our desire? Where do we put the bulk of our time? Because obviously where we put our time is going to dictate who we really serve. The second commandment that is given here in Exodus elaborates upon the first. Let me read it again for us. Verse 4. You shall not make for yourselves an idol or any likeness of what is in the heaven above, or earth beneath, or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. In effect, God is saying you shall not make or worship an idol. Mankind was made in the image of God. That, of course, as we've talked about when we were in Genesis, and as certainly you know from other times of your own study, that does not mean that God has arms and legs and eyes and a head, that God is shaped like we are. It's talking about the Spirit. We're made in the spiritual image of God. And because that is true, we have a need to worship. There is no human being on this planet who does not have a need to worship, nor who does not worship something. Many of those who proclaim there is no God and and they don't want to have to worship any God are worshiping at the altar of themselves. They are the great God that they are worshiping. They worship their intellect or whatever. Every human being worships something. Because there's a need to do that. It's built right into our being. As as we're told in uh, Ecclesiastes, God has set eternity in their hearts. Every, Every person has a sense that he or she will live beyond this time. And that there is something greater than himself. And Satan tempts us to worship anything but God. He doesn't care what we worship. Laws—it's not God. He, of course, would like us to worship Him, and in effect, we are, if we're not worshiping God. In the restatement of the law, which is given in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses was inspired to give details concerning obedience to this command. In the twenty, in the fourth chapter, the fourth chapter of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 4, beginning at verse 15. So watch yourselves carefully. Since you did not see any form on the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, that is, Mount Sinai, from the midst of the fire, lest you act corruptly and make a graven image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the sky, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water below the earth. And beware lest you lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of the heaven, and be drawn away and worship them and serve them, those which the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven God proclaimed very very specifically to the Israelites that they were not to worship as their pagan neighbors worship. All around them were peoples that worshiped animals, human forms, the hosts of the heavens. In fact, later on when you study through the scripture and you get into the time of the uh, judges and then beyond the judges when the monarchy is exists in Israel, you discover that some of the most heinous things that occurred were when the kings of Israel led the people into worshiping the sun and the moon and the stars and sacrificing their own children on fiery altars to these gods. God warned them against copying their pagan neighbors by making images of humans or animals or fish or birds or even of the celestial bodies. One of the oldest forms of worship is the worship of the sun, moon, and stars and the patterns up there. The signs of the zodiac go way, way back in history. They go back at least from our perspective at least 5,000 years. The ancient Sumerians first began to see patterns and they transferred it to the Babylonians who transferred it to the Greeks who transferred it to the Romans and on down to our day. And, and, you know, you have these, these 12 signs, which represent the position of the earth relative to the sun each month of the year. And as that particular star pattern is in the quadrant of the sky where the sun was during the day of that time of the year, that, that became the sign of that time. And, of course, they saw the patterns and they gave to them images, you know, Scorpio or Leo or, or whatever, Libra most of them as you notice are either animal or human forms and and early on they were given divinity and people worship these signs and what many today in modern science you know we we live in a country that is that is uh, some aspects of our society worship at the altar of modern science and some of these scientists just cannot comprehend how intelligent people in the 20th century in America can actually buy a horoscope and think that it means anything because they know what the stars are. They're just the, you know, the accidental evolution of molecules. Well, we know they're not the accidental evolution, but we also know there's no divinity in the stars or in their patterns or in the planets or anything else. In fact, Peter calls people who are evil within the framework of the church, planetas, planets, wandering aimlessly through the sky as the planets seem to do relative to the stars. Not that the planets are evil in themselves, but, but this whole concept of the zodiac, which means circle of animals, has its root in demonism. And God knew that these things would be a temptation to His people. And so they were not to make any attempt to represent God himself or anything else as, a, as an idol for the purposes of worship. Jesus would say later to the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well, God is a spirit, and those that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. This prohibition, was not against making representations of animals or people or objects for the purposes of art. God is in no way prohibiting replication of these things for the purposes of artistic uh, demonstration, but purely for the purposes of idolatry. Because God himself would later instruct the Israelites to weave cherubim into the the great... um, veil that would hang between the holy and the holiest of holy places. And, and cherubim would be represented many places. I mean, on the Ark of the Covenant were two cherubim. God, that, that was for artistic purposes. That had nothing to do with worship. That is, the images didn't have anything to do with worship. They weren't to be worshipped themselves. And so there was no prohibition against that. Of course, as you know, the The Islamic world has taken this prohibition to mean any kind of representation. And uh, if you look at Islamic art, you will rarely find any kind of form that is recognizable. It's usually just kinds of geometric and other kinds of uh, drawings, maybe with a little floral or plant representation there. But generally their art, not even their art, demonstrates forms that could be interpreted as Images for the purpose of worship. So this prohibition was expressly against idols. An image made for the purpose of worship. When man rejects the true God, he will worship an idol. There is no other option. His very nature requires it. And this is made so clear for us by Paul in the first chapter of Romans we've alluded to this before but I'd like to look at it again briefly this morning the first chapter Romans verse 18 because this chapter answers so many questions for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew about God, They did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Verse 22, unfortunately, I think, can be written in blazing letters over 20th century America. Because so many in this country, especially in academia, profess to be wise. But because they deny the very foundation of wisdom, that is God, they become fools. I I think I mentioned to you this before we were listening to Channel 9 one night, and I think it was Stephen Gould was being interviewed. They'd interviewed some people from Institute of Creation Research, uh, particularly Duane, Dr. Dwayne Gish. And he'd given some of the points of creationism and how obviously evolution couldn't be so, and Gould just kind of laughed at it all. He said, of course there's all kinds of evidence of evolution. Of course there's all kinds of transition fossils. Of course there's this, of course there's that, without giving a lick of proof of any of it. But he just sat there so smugly, with a smirk on his face, saying of course this is all true. Of course these people have some kind of narrow-minded ax to grind. And I thought, professing to be wise, this man's a fool. Because one day he's going to stand before God and he's going to say, he's not going to say anything. Because Israel stood here before Mount Sinai as God spoke and those people weren't saying anything. Huh. Now you can imagine what a man who has denied the true and the living God, what opportunity he, is he going to have to speak anything as he stands before the great white throne judgment of God and becomes smitten in his soul with absolute conviction that he was totally guilty professing to be wise, they became fools. That's what God is trying to prevent His people from being. He wants them to worship the true and the living God in the way that God has prescribed, which is to live out these Ten Commandments, and and all that's related to that, of course. to, To live as we know the New Testament instructs us to live, and the New Testament is absolutely built on the foundation of the Old. It's really hard to understand the New Testament if you don't have a good foundation in the Old Testament. A lot of things don't make much sense. God gave these commandments so that the people would have a very clear standard whereby to measure their attitudes and actions. How do you know if an attitude or a thought or an action is wrong? Unless there's a standard to measure it by. And God doesn't just move in upon us in some kind of a ethereal feeling, because a lot of people who are into the feeling form of Christianity feel all kinds of things that may not have anything to do with God. Oh, I feel so good about God, and, and, and God is a God of love, and He loves me, and so it's okay if I love more than one woman, or something like that, you know. And, you know, one of the big problems that occurred in some of the early camp meetings in U.S. history was the fact that there was such an emphasis upon love that everybody started loving everybody. And it went beyond just loving, you know, my my loving you as a brother or a sister in Christ. It went to physical loving and all kinds of really serious moral problems. It's easy for those barriers to be broken down if we don't keep our eyes upon the God who has who has brought us into His kingdom and upon what He has said we are to do to demonstrate the reality of worship and of faith." <laughs> I was talking to Don yesterday and we were talking about the fact that, you know, th- these are called the Ten Commandments, but some people have made them into the Ten Suggestions or, you know, that the Ten Commandments choose any eight, <laughs> you know, kind of approach to things. And that's, that's not what we have here. Because each one builds upon the other. And all ten of them together give to us a, a sense of what it really means to have a heart and a mind to worship God. It's not a bunch of don'ts that you just, if you don't do this, you're okay. It's just that when you don't do it, you're not doing it because you have God's heart and you're doing the positive side of it. If you're not committing murder, theoretically, then you should be loving your neighbor. Some have implied that Jesus changed them. You know, that the Old Testament said, thou shalt not murder. But uh, Jesus said, you're supposed to love your neighbor, love those who hate you, as if he made some kind of a change. There's no change there at all. That's the positive side of that commandment. If you don't murder, you're supposed to love those who hate you. And it's all implied directly there in the Ten Commandments themselves. God spelling it out this way made it so clear so that they knew if they were violating his commandments and therefore not worshiping him as they should. If God had not said that you should not make an idol, they could have made idols and said, well, I'm really worshiping God. And in fact, they will do this in spite of the commandment. Because when Moses is up on the mountain receiving the the law, the Israelites are down there making a golden calf. Now, to them, to many of them, that golden calf represented Yahweh. And later on, when Jeroboam would build a golden calf in Dan and another one in Bethel, he would say, this is the God of Israel. Now, he was not changing it to some other god. He wasn't saying this was Baal or Ashtar or something. He was saying, this is the God of Israel. Worship this idol. But God gave them this commandment so that there would be no confusion, it would be seen as a clear act of rebellion in violation of the word of God if they worshiped any physical form. God further explained that rebellion and disobedience in this light were so infectious that they could contaminate the family to the third and down to the fourth generation. But in stark contrast to that, in this passage we read, that those who love God and keep His commandments will experience His loving kindness. This is a special Hebrew word, chesed. And and it's a word that reappears frequently in the Old Testament. It's a very, very important word because it talks about the nature of God. In, In this particular passage, The meaning is twofold. First of all, it's an expression of God keeping His end of the bargain. That is, if they would love and obey God, He would fulfill every promise on their behalf. Not one promise would be lacking on their behalf. And then secondly, it was an expression of God's eternal attributes of His love, of His mercy, of His kindness, of His grace, and to love and obey God would open the door to his chesed in their lives. The attributes of God would become theirs in the sense that they would experience his loving kindness and then share it with one another. 1 John chapter 4. 1 John four sixteen. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this love is perfected with us, that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, And the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. You'll notice the emphasis here upon the fact that God is love, and if we abide in love, the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Love is an attribute of God. And there's no way that true love, godly love, can be in our hearts unless God has put it there. And that's an attribute of God. That's a characteristic of God. And so that reality of of his being is manifested in us and radiated out of us to others. And we're knit together by that common love. That should be what binds the church in part. And that's why the church should be a safe place for us to come and to seek help from one another, whether it be by prayer or for prayer or counseling or whatever it is. The church should be a safe haven because this love should knit us all together as an attribute of God. And that's what the people would receive, who would walk in obedience to his commandments because that was true worship of the living God. And as they truly worshiped the living God, his nature would be theirs. And as they represented Him in the world. Others would be drawn to Him. That's the ultimate testimony. We can witness till we're blue in the face. Unless our lives radiate the love and compassion and kindness of God, our witness, though, will have very little fruit. And that comes through obedience, which is the true worship of God. Well, I guess we'll pick up the third commandment next week. The third commandment is a commandment that's often uh, looked at much more tritely than maybe should be. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And many people just think that means don't cuss. (laughs) It means a whole lot more than that. And we'll focus on that to begin with next week.